Thanks for being with us on this Saturday morning. Well, you likely heard in the news, New Zealand brought in a ban on foreign home buyers for existing properties. And we've heard from Andrew Weaver of the BC Greens saying he would like to see BC follow in that direction. It's something he's called for in the past as well. So what would this actually look like? Well, Sir Somerville is a University of BC economics professor and he joins us on the line now. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. Uh, first, what's your response to what New Zealand has done as far as banning foreign buyers of existing homes? You know, I mean, what they've done is really um, resembles what Australia um, has had for quite a few years, um, well, over a decade already, which is really channeling uh, foreign buyers into new construction and into new projects. Um, new Zealand seems to take it a little bit further in that um, the new projects uh, really need to be uh, multifamily buildings. Um, and that's not necessarily the case uh, in, in Australia. Uh, so it's it's kind of at the extreme step that we see in market economies um, in the world in terms of foreign ownership of real estate. And were we able to, or, or before making this move, do we know, was New Zealand able to say that, yes, the reason that we have such huge house prices, I think that in Auckland, the home prices had climbed something like 75% in four years. The reason that this is happening is because of foreign buyers? You can say the reason, and certainly one of the reasons. Um, overall, uh, foreign ownership in New Zealand looks like it does in BC, but I think think the most recent stats out of out of Auckland had it pushing 20% in some areas. Um, so, you know, there were, were conditions that were similar to what you might have seen in, in the city of Vancouver and the city of Richmond in, in Auckland itself. And when you talk about how it's followed along in Australia's lead or perhaps is a little more aggressive, are we able to look at Australia and say, yes, by bringing in this measure, it did, in fact, bring in a cooling and helped prices? Uh, we're not able to explicitly say it because it's really, it's really hard to identify things um, if you don't have pretty good data. What's interesting is Australia, even though they have that measure in place, uh, the two Australian states, New South Wales and Victoria, um, that have tended to have the most foreign uh, purchases also introduced foreign buyer taxes that are analogous to what we have in the lower mainland. So at least in the view of Australians, that in and of itself wasn't enough. Uh, so where that and that seems to be some of the debate is bringing in this ban or continuing on with how BC has gone, which is going with the foreign buyers tax. And can we can you look at the two separately or see if one is better than the other? Um, you know they're different. I mean, to some extent, we can really only analyze it um, theoretically. And I and I think more, I think it's it's you kind of you kind of get some different types of outcomes. I think one way to to, to really differentiate it is is to, to think that if you had a program like you had in in, in New Zealand and Australia, you'd get more of the fire foreign buyership in new developments and in, in towers and in, 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 in condo buildings, as opposed to, say, B.C., where the tax um, allows people who really have a lot of wealth to buy detached properties. So it's, I think it's more where foreign buyers get challenged, and those things are, are, are different here, it probably puts, it de facto would put, it puts more pressure on single family, less pressure on condo. There, you're going to get more pressure on condo because you're forcing any foreign demand to go into that product.
So do you think it would have an impact? I mean, we're already seeing things change a bit in the Metro Vancouver markets as far as cooling down. And again, like like you said, I don't know that we can pinpoint it to any one thing. Uh, But would bringing in a a complete ban on foreign buyers or bringing in something similar to what New Zealand has done, what kind of an impact do you think that would have? Well, yeah, it would certainly, you know, dampen the housing market uh, additionally um, because, of, you know, anything that, that puts more of a restriction on, on foreign demand, since that is part of demand, will have that effect. But again, you, know, you have trade-offs. And um, I, I think it's it's important to remember that in the, in the Lower Mainland, not only is real estate an important industry, uh, but tourism is, as well. And, and most places that are tourist destinations have some ability for uh, non-residents to buy units there because they happen to like to visit a lot. And so um, you, you're always a little worried about what kind of signals that you're sending and trying to find the right balance between the, the, the different objectives. So, you know, I think, you know, in, in, in discussing it, it's, it's not something where it's, uh, you know, any restriction is not a costless one. One of the advantages of having the tax program, too, is it raises revenue and that, that gives an additional revenue flow from non-residents that lets you address resident, uh, the needs of residents. So, you know, it does generate money that, the, that the, the provincial government can use to address the housing needs of people who are the hardest hit. And if you had a, an outright uh, just restrictions, um, you wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, so looking at somewhere like Vancouver, then, if you were to, to have then a foreign buyers, uh, a ban on foreign buyers for, say, say, much like New Zealand for existing stock and, and coupled with the empty homes tax, it doesn't it seems to send a message to, to foreign buyers. Don't bother coming here. Uh, well, yeah, uh, that, well, that's the objective, right? I yeah. mean, you know, Andrew uh, uh, Weaver's objective is to to, to direct, uh, erect a, finan- a wall against financial inflows. And, you know, if all you care about is, is housing prices, um, then that's certainly something that you would do. But there, there are multiple objectives. And, and, you know, those are, those are the kinds of trade-offs. And I think, you know, there's also, I think, just the, the notion of what's the degree of openness we want to signal. And um, there's some element in that slamming the, slamming the door is not a, a, a welcome come here. And I think the welcome come here um, message is, is important in, in a sort of general engagement in the world sense. Um, so you know, I tend to, to think that you always have to think of these trade-offs and you know, how, much, how much do you get from what additional step? You know, the, the, the tax has the advantage of being something that, that lots of places have. It doesn't say no. It just says, you know what, you're you're putting uh, an onus on local residents, and so therefore you need to pay more. And we're going to use that that money to help them. That that seems to me um, uh, a, a better signal, but it may not be as successful a, a mechanism as as a, as a harsher restriction, which is what you see in New Zealand. Do you think are we oversimplifying it or focusing too much on foreign buyers in the market and not looking at some of the other factors that is Metro Vancouver is a beautiful place to live. It's on the ocean. It's it's there's a certain there's a finite amount of land in the city itself. Uh, We have lower salaries than other cities, which which goes into the whole affordability equation. Are are we focusing too much on foreign buyers when we look at housing affordability? I think when we focus entirely on foreign buyers, we're, we're taking the easy out, which is, oh, it's, it's these other people. Uh, and I think all the factors that you cited played a role in, in, in the affordability challenges here. When you look around the world at the places that have the most difficulty with housing affordability, well, not all of them are as acute as Vancouver, 
um, there's a lot of similarities in terms of, you know, a high, high amenity cities with limited land supply. Um, and so you've got demand pressures and, and you have supply pressures. Um, it doesn't mean that the, that foreign demand doesn't uh, contribute, but it but it's it's you know it's not it's not going to be the only thing. You know, if, if we got rid of foreign foreign demand here, we would not all of a sudden magically be affordable. Right, which I think is is sort of the, that some are making that connection between this and and would be it would make things more affordable, right? I mean, you know, like reducing demand has has uh, positive effects on affordability. It does have other effects, you know, to the extent that it, that, you know, you, and I think you, you you need to think seriously about that. It'd be worth, it'll be interesting to see what happens in New Zealand. Um, sometimes it gives us sort of a a little bit of an experiment to see what happens there. Um, and so I, I think I would be mindful about uh, monitoring what happens there before rushing into anything here. Uh, because would it, would it also lead or could it lead to, if, if foreign buyers are still, if we followed the New Zealand model, would it not lead then to new projects and new developments being, they would continue to be very difficult for non-foreign buyers to get into? Um, I mean, it, it certainly takes that demand and sticks it into one type of, of product and uh, it creates an incentive to then market those directly. Um, the upside of it is um, if you think the limited availability is not uh, condominium cubes in the sky, but land, um, it does reduce the sort of foreign intensity of land use, right? Because you're sort of stacking foreign demand in the sky, in the sky instead of sort of spreading it out um, in single family homes. So it, it, it does have that advantage. But if, if you're not going to if you're not going to match it with a with an increase um, in the supply of condos, then you run the risk of essentially making things a little bit easier in the high end single family home market, um, but making it worse in the in the less expensive condo market. And so then all you've done is sort of the, the worst outcome of it is essentially made uh, expensive homes a little less uh, a little more affordable for rich people. Uh, and then condos are more expensive for people of more modest incomes. I'm not quite sure that's what an NDP government would want to do. <laughs> no, probably not. Uh, sir, always great to chat with you. We're out of time, but thank you so much. We'll talk to you again, I'm sure. Okay, bye, Joe. Earlier in the program, we were talking about the fires burning in the interior. Prince George, you likely saw the footage, the darkness that went over that city yesterday. It was about nine o'clock in the morning, but it looked like it was the middle of the night. Uh, Burns Lake, many other communities currently dealing with heavy smoke in the air. And certainly in Metro Vancouver, we've also been dealing with smoke from the forest fires. It's looking better out there today, but there is still that haze that keeps it top of mind, the current wildfires burning in BC. And a lot of people are asking, is this the new normal? Because it seems like a few years ago, it was an oddity to have the smoke filtering most of the sunlight, whereas now it's happening more often. Well, my next guest is the president of the group Canadian, the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. And Courtney Howard joins me on the line. Courtney, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. Um, The group, uh, members of the group uh, have written uh, an opinion piece. Uh, It's in the Vancouver Sun, Wake Up and Smell the Smoke. Uh, Maybe walk us through what are some of the concerns uh, from the group, uh, the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment? 
So the World Health Organization has called climate change the biggest global health threat of the 21st century, but we still don't often think about climate change in terms of health. And these wildfires are a really good example of some of the health impacts we're going to see as the climate continues to warm. So as you mentioned, there's been really hazy, cloudy skies across much of uh, BC over the last few months. I was actually down in Oliver on vacation uh, last week, and we experienced that for ourselves and my family. So uh, smoke actually um, has numerous health impacts for people. Uh, people with asthma are likely to see increased asthma exacerbations. Uh, people who have COPD or chronic obstructive lung disease, same thing. Some studies have shown an increase in heart attacks. Um, there have even been a couple of studies who show reduced birth weight in children who are born after a wildfire episode. So the evidence base is changing a lot as more and more studies are being done because we're seeing more uh, smoke impacts of this nature across the world as extreme wildfires increase. And the, the piece talks as well about uh, kind of the different approaches governments are taking. On the one hand, talking about climate change and initiatives to move to clean energy and such. But then on the other hand, also investing in fossil fuels and investing in, uh, in the more traditional uh, industries. Is it your concern as well that the, the direction from government isn't addressing this? Well, we know we need to adapt. Uh, You know, the world is already warmer than it used to be. And so we need to, you know, put a lot of effort and research and uh, policy thinking into uh, adapting to wildfires and adapting to extreme heat events. So, you know, Sarah Henderson at the BC Centre for Disease Control is doing great work in terms of making sure BC has a really uh, robust public health response. But unfortunately, we know that where we're going from an emissions trajectory, um, you know, the Paris Climate Change Agreement is trying to keep global surface temperature warming to, you know, well below two degrees Celsius uh, by the year 2100. We're heading way over that. So the Lancet countdown on climate change last year quoted that we're heading to about 2.6 to 4.8 degrees Celsius of warming based on our current emissions. And we're simply not expected to be able to adapt to a world that's over four degrees Celsius. So that means we need to decrease emissions rapidly. So we need to, as the piece pointed out, move very rapidly to a a low carbon economy and put our money that we have uh, at this point of transition towards the transition. So towards supporting workers as they transition from coal and other fossil fuel based economies into a low carbon economy, because we know that income is a social determinant of health. So we need to make sure we make this a healthy transition for everybody. But we can't be spending that same money um, on, you know, an order of magnitude more money on fossil fuel infrastructure as we're doing with the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Uh, But isn't it a a bigger issue than that? And yes, we can do things here in Canada and it's smoke that's in our air right now. So we're thinking about it. It's top of mind. But when we're talking about the the planet, we're talking about global warming. It's other countries as well. And that Canada, does it, isn't it not a scenario where Canada, we can do all of these things, but if other countries aren't doing the same, it's not as though we can solve the problem on our own. Well, from a, from a health perspective, um, health professionals worldwide are working on this now. So I'm actually in charge of a global policy coordination effort. So I spent the entire summer talking to doctors across the world about wildfires that are happening in their region, about heat events that are happening in their region, um, you know, doctors from Sweden to Beijing. And everybody, every physician is working from the same um, theory. So we are all urging our governments to phase out coal. We are all urging our governments to rapidly transition to a low carbon economy. And that's simply because we're not actually expected if we, if the world heads to where we're, where emissions are pointing us towards, um, not only 
where we have health impacts, but our health infrastructure will be put at risk. We saw with those severe wildfires um, in Fort McMurray that Fort McMurray had to evacuate their hospital within about a couple of hours. Um, Williams Lake had to evacuate several healthcare facilities last year. The big storms down in the Gulf this year actually um, took out one of the world's biggest suppliers of normal saline. And we had normal saline um, shortages up here in Yellowknife, where I live, months later. So because of our globalized uh, supply chain, um, really all of this affects health all over the world. Um, so Canada, you know, per capita, we, we are one of the world's highest consumers of fossil fuels. So we actually have a lot of room to move to even bring ourselves in line with what is fair. When you talk about the health impacts too, is it, is it, do you think people pay more attention when we are in a scenario like we are right now? There is smoke in the air. There are people who are, are with asthma or with uh, compromised immune systems that, that are even more vulnerable with this. Does this at least, I suppose, help uh, people acknowledge that something needs to be done? Yeah, it's sort of unfortunate. You know, I, I live in a very melting place. So Yellowknife is about a degree and a half warmer than it was um, in the 1950s. And I serve patients that go up to the Arctic Circle. So it's almost three degrees Celsius warmer for some of my patients. So I got involved with this, you know, maybe seven years ago now. Um, and, you know, it used to be difficult to kind of make the case that climate change was causing health impacts. Unfortunately, every summer it's getting easier. Um, but yes, it, it's sort of like when, you know, a patient comes to the emergency department, I'm an emergency doctor with a heart attack. That's what in medicine we call a teachable moment. You know, that's your moment to say, hey, you know, this would be a great chance to, you know, start exercising more, stop smoking, to change your behavior. And the welfare events act in a bit of a similar way on a population scale where we say, hey, this is kind of what we mean when we're talking about the health impacts of climate change. It really sucks, doesn't it? Um, and to use that as a moment to, to, sort of point out the downsides of, of the way we've been sort of going about business as usual and point out that we could we could feel better, you know. A lot of the things that we um, need to do to transition away from fossil fuels will clear our air. So moving to more, um, you know, walking and biking paths, that decreases local air pollution. And cycling actually reduces mortality for people. Um, things like phasing out coal pollution in different parts of Canada, which we've committed to do, will also reduce air pollution and air, you know, asthma exacerbations as well as the healthcare costs that we um, incur as a result of needing to treat those those problems. So, you know, when we we're, we're just gonna, if we manage to transition to a lower carbon economy, we'll be living in a world that smells better, that feels better, that's greener. So there's really no downside. Um, but meanwhile, there's a giant downside because we're in a time window right now that we won't get back. You know, by the time my children are my age, you know, the horse will be out of the barn. We are the only people who can make this transition. And unfortunately, you know, it's a giant responsibility, but it's also a giant opportunity. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. But Courtney, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your comments, your thoughts this morning. Earlier in the program, we were talking about the fires burning in the interior. Prince George, you likely saw the footage, the darkness that went over that city yesterday. It was about 9 o'clock in the morning, but it looked like it was the middle of the night. Uh, Burns Lake, many other communities currently dealing with heavy smoke in the air. And certainly in Metro Vancouver, we've also been dealing with smoke from the forest fires. It's looking better out there today, but there is still that haze uh, that keeps it top 
top of mind the current wildfires burning in BC. And a lot of people are asking, is this the new normal? Because it seems like a few years ago, it was an oddity to have the smoke filtering most of the sunlight, whereas now it's happening more often. Well, my next guest is the president of the group Canadian, the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. And Courtney Howard joins me on the line. Courtney, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. Um, The group, uh, members of the group uh, have written uh, an opinion piece. Uh, It's in the Vancouver Sun, wake up and smell the smoke. Uh, Maybe walk us through what are some of the concerns uh, from the group, uh, the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment? So the World Health Organization has called climate change the biggest global health threat of the 21st century, but we still don't often think about climate change in terms of health. And these wildfires are a really good example of some of the health impacts we're going to see as the climate continues to warm. So as you mentioned, there's been really hazy, cloudy skies across much of uh, BC over the last few months. I was actually down in Oliver on vacation uh, last week, and we experienced that for ourselves and my family. So Uh, smoke actually um, has numerous health impacts for people. Uh, People with asthma are likely to see increased asthma exacerbations. Uh, People who have COPD or chronic obstructive lung disease, same thing. Some studies have shown an increase in heart attacks. Um, There have even been a couple of studies who show reduced birth weight in children who are born after a wildfire episode. So the evidence base is changing a lot as more and more studies are being done because we're seeing more uh, smoke impacts of this nature across the world as extreme wildfires increase. And the the piece talks as well about uh, kind of the different approaches governments are taking on the one hand, uh, talking about climate change and initiatives to move to clean energy and such. But then on the other hand, also investing in fossil fuels and investing in uh, the more traditional uh, industries. Is it your concern as well that the the direction from government isn't addressing this? Well, we know we need to adapt. Uh, You know, the world is already warmer than it used to be. And so we need to, you know, put a lot of effort and research and uh, policy thinking into uh, adapting to wildfires and adapting to extreme heat events. So, you know, Sarah Henderson at the BC Centre for Disease Control is doing great work in terms of making sure BC has a really uh, robust public health response. But unfortunately, we know that where we're going from an emissions trajectory, um, you know, the Paris Climate Change Agreement is trying to keep global surface temperature warming to, you know, well below two degrees Celsius uh, by the year 2100. We're heading way over that. So the Lancet countdown on climate change last year quoted that we're heading to about 2.6 to 4.8 degrees Celsius of warming based on our current emissions. And we're simply not expected to be able to adapt to a world that's over four degrees Celsius. So that means we need to decrease emissions rapidly. So we need to, as the piece pointed out, move very rapidly to a a low carbon economy and put our money that we have uh, at this point of transition towards the transition. So towards supporting workers as they transition from coal and other fossil fuel based economies into a low carbon economy, because we know that income is a social determinant of health. So we need to make sure we make this a healthy transition for everybody. But we can't be spending that same money um, on, you know, an order of magnitude more money on fossil fuel infrastructure as we're doing with the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Uh, But isn't it a a bigger issue than that? And yes, we can do things here in Canada and it's smoke that's in our air right now. So 
we're thinking about it, it's top of mind. But when we're talking about the the planet, we're talking about global warming. It's other countries as well, and that it, Canada does it. Isn't it not a scenario where Canada we can do all of these things? But if other countries aren't doing the same, it's not as though we can solve the problem on our own. Well, from a from a health perspective, um, health professionals worldwide are working on this now. So I'm actually in charge of a global policy coordination effort. So I've spent the entire summer talking to doctors across the world about wildfires that are happening in their region, about heat events that are happening in their region, um, you know, doctors from Sweden to Beijing. And everybody, every physician is working from the same um, theory. So we are all urging our governments to phase out coal. We are all urging our governments to rapidly transition to a low carbon economy. And that's simply because we're not actually expected if we, if the world heads to where we're, where emissions are pointing us towards, um, not only will we have health impacts, but our health infrastructure will be put at risk. We saw with those severe wildfires um, in Fort McMurray that Fort McMurray had to evacuate their hospital within about a couple of hours. Um, Williams Lake had to evacuate several healthcare facilities last year. The big storms down in the Gulf this year actually um, took out one of the world's biggest suppliers of normal saline. And we had normal saline um, shortages up here in Yellowknife, where I live, months later. So because of our globalized uh, supply chain, um, really all of this affects health all over the world. Um, so Canada, you know, per capita, we, we are one of the world's highest consumers of fossil fuels. So we actually have a lot of room to move to even bring ourselves in line with what is fair. When you talk about the health impacts too, is it, is it, do you think people pay more attention when we are in a scenario like we are right now? There is smoke in the air. There are people who are, are with asthma or with uh, compromised immune systems that, that are even more vulnerable with this. Does this at least, I suppose, help uh, people acknowledge that something needs to be done? Yeah, it's sort of unfortunate. You know, I, I live in a very melting place. So Yellowknife is about a degree and a half warmer than it was um, in the 1950s. And I serve patients that go up to the Arctic Circle. So it's almost three degrees Celsius warmer for some of my patients. So I got involved with this, you know, maybe seven years ago now. Um, and, you know, it used to be difficult to kind of make the case that climate change was causing health impacts. Unfortunately, every summer it's getting easier. Um, but yes, it, it's sort of like when, you know, a patient comes to the emergency department, I'm an emergency doctor with a heart attack. That's what in medicine we call a teachable moment. You know, that's your moment to say, Hey, you know, this would be a great chance to, you know, start exercising more, stop smoking to change your behavior. And the wildfire events act in a bit of a similar way on a population scale where we say, Hey, this is kind of what we mean when we're talking about the health impacts of climate change. It really sucks, doesn't it? Um, and to use that as a moment to, to, sort of point out the downsides of, of the way we've been sort of going about business as usual and point out that we could we could feel better, you know. A lot of the things that we um, need to do to transition away from fossil fuels will clear our air. So moving to more, um, you know, walking and biking paths, that decreases local air pollution. And cycling actually reduces mortality for people. Um, things like phasing out coal pollution in different parts of Canada, which we've committed to do, will also reduce air pollution and air, you know, asthma exacerbations, as well as the healthcare costs that we um, incur as a result of needing to treat those those problems. So, you know, when we we're, we're just gonna, if we manage to transition to a lower carbon economy, we'll be living in a world that smells better, that feels better, that's greener. So there's really no downside. Um, but meanwhile, there's a giant downside because we're in a time window right now that we won't get back. You know, by the time my children are my age, 
you know, the horse will be out of the barn. We are the only people who can make this transition. And unfortunately, you know, it's a giant responsibility, but it's also a giant opportunity. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. But Courtney, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate uh, your comments, your thoughts this morning. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. And, you know, have a good day down there in Vancouver. I grew up there and I, you know, it's a tough place to get out of your heart. (laughs) Very, very true. All right. That is uh, Courtney Howard. Uh, Courtney is the president of the group Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. And your thoughts on this won't have time to play your comments today, but we certainly will have time tomorrow morning on the show. If you want to give the buzz line a call, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2. Eight nine nine. Let me know what you think on this conversation or anything that happens to be on your mind this morning. And you can also email me jbennett at cknw.com if you would prefer to uh, get through to us that way. Uh, just a reminder, the fair at the PNE on a much lighter and happier note, the fair at the PNE starts today. So if you are interested in taking that in, the gates open at 11 o'clock this morning until late. That's taking place at the PNE Fairgrounds on Hastings, uh, East Hastings Street. And there are a lot of different uh, days coming up where the admission is uh, either free or reduced, depending on if you uh, are a first responder, if you wear certain socks and such. You can check it out on their website. But today is the first day, which is also kind of sad because for me that triggers that summer is coming to an end. But if you are heading out to check it out, uh, have a great time. Amir Ali is at the controls today. Ben Dooley also produces this program. Have a great rest of your Saturday. I'll be with you again right here tomorrow.